That'd be better. Good morning. Charles Spurgeon said this. If we could see sin as it appears to the all-discerning eye of God, we should be more shocked at the sight of sin than by a vision of hell. In sin itself, there is abomination and only abomination. Sin is something out of joint with the whole system of the universe. Sin is a plague, a pest full of dangers to everything that breathes. Sin degrades and debases us. I have some questions for you. How serious are you about your sin? Not just sin, your sin. Do you understand that sin is not an enemy at the gates, but an enemy within the gates? Do you understand that this is not a let go and let God thing, but that you are an active combatant in this battle? And since it is your mortal enemy, do you have a strategic battle plan? Our passage today is Mark chapter 9. And generally, basically, I'll be talking about the seriousness of sin and what to do about it. Mark chapter 9 starts this way, chapter, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the word of the Lord. This is one of those passages that when you come to it, you want to skip it. Matt wouldn't let us do that. I'm going to talk about sin which is a uh, pretty unpopular topic, but a very popular activity. And from the get-go, I want you to understand that I'm talking about sin, not temptation. Martin Luther 
great picture. You can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. That's the difference between temptation and sin. I want to deal with four questions this morning. First question is, what's, what's the sin here in this passage? Secondly, how serious is sin from this passage? And we'll answer both of those from the text. Why is sin so hard to deal with? The third question. And the fourth question, what are we to do about sin? And we're going to answer those from Paul. So what's the sin? John had just heard Jesus say in the previous passage that Matt read and dealt with last week, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And it's very likely that the words in my name made John think, oops, this guy we just tried to shut down said he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Maybe, maybe he's one of these one such child that Jesus is talking about. I think we may have blown it. And Jesus says, you blew it. If he was doing it openly in my name, he, he's not going to turn around and say something bad about me. Besides, anyone who is not against us is for us. Ironically, this guy was doing what the disciples had been unable to do with that mute son just previous to this. Now, we have no idea who, who this guy was, but it really doesn't matter. The issue is he was exercising demons, which the disciples were supposed to be doing. He was doing it in the name of Jesus, which was the way to do it, and it was working. So you would think that John would have had had some pause to think through that, but, but he didn't. And I think the key phrase is, because he was not following us. See, John's beginning to realize as he's talking to Jesus about this that maybe, just maybe, they were ticked off because this guy was butting in on their turf. Remember, they had just been arguing, as Matt talked about last week, and he jumped ahead to chapter 10, where they're, it's even worse than chapter 9. They had just been arguing over which one of them was Muhammad Ali. Who's the greatest of us? And being the greatest, by definition, remember, excludes everyone except its one member. So they were in a pretty sketchy place at this point. Their complaint was not that the man was not following Jesus. Their complaint was that the man was not following us. He's not part of our group. John, I think, was the spokesman here for that, that spirit of ecclesiastical intolerance in which the church has taken following us to equal following him. And in responding to John, Jesus essentially called John and the others to, to evaluate the man's relationship to Christ, not on the basis of the group to which he belonged, but on the basis of the fruit of his ministry. Uh, Hebert, commentator, commentator Hebert says this, this brief incident stands as a firm rebuke to that exclusive attitude which insists that only those who carry on their work in harmony with our own views and practices can be accepted as really doing God's work. If they demonstrate that they are on God's side in the war with Satan, even though their views may be imperfect, they must not be condemned for such work or regarded with abhorrence. Now, of course, we've got to draw boundaries, right? I mean, for example, 
the deity of Jesus, the uh, inspiration of the scriptures, uh, justification coming to Christ by faith alone. That, that's a boundary that we, we can't go beyond and say, oh yeah, yeah, you're, we're the same, same as you. But we must draw our boundaries around the essential matters. And if you've been in a new member's class recently, like the one coming up on the 30th, you know that we try very hard to do that, to draw the lines at the essentials of the Christian faith. Now, if I had time, which I don't, for two messages from this passage, I'd stop right here and I'd talk about the um, incredible damage that the, the too tight boundaries has done to the church of Jesus Christ over the centuries. We have not done this well. I have not done this well. But that's not what I want to talk about this morning. But to show the importance of what he means, Jesus says in verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Even something as insignificant as giving a cup of water to a little one, a follower of, a believer in Jesus, will be rewarded. Any act, whether it's casting out a demon or simply giving a cup of water, shows its true character by how it is attached to Jesus. That's the issue. And John evidently learned this lesson well. There's no New Testament writer that talks more about loving one another than John. So that's the sin in this passage. And that, by the way, goes along with a whole host of other sins in the lives of the disciples in just the past month of their experience with Christ. I mean, they have shown little faith. Jesus has called them hard-hearted. They've last week, they wondered who's going to be the greatest. They were, their ego is, is so high. They're insensitive. They reject people. I mean, this is all within the last month. And I think that's why we come to the kind of passage we do here today that Jesus kind of thinks it's time to deal with the seriousness of sin. So how serious is sin? Second question. Well, Jesus says that anyone who causes one of his little ones, and that's not just children. He was using children as an illustration of his, his children. And John, in his writings, calls us little ones. So it's any believer, one of his followers, if we cause that person to stumble or to fall into sin, Jesus said, you'd be better off having a millstone for a necklace and being tossed into the sea. There's a millstone. In the ancient world, a millstone was a stone placed on top of a, another stone and turned in order to crush the grain into flour. These things weighed about 1,500 pounds. So the millstone was so heavy that it took one or more donkeys to turn it. So to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around your neck meant you could forget about trying to float. And ancient Jews were panic-stricken of water. So you can imagine how horrific this would sound to the ears of Jesus' listeners, the disciples. So how serious is sin? Three-quarters of a ton millstone necklace serious. That's how serious. But then he goes on in verses 43 to 48, and he turns, he turns from warning about uh, ensnaring others to a warning about allowing ourselves to be ensnared. Here he's talking to the 12 disciples, and the language of Jesus is startlingly graphic. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Wow. You don't usually hear Jesus talking like that. 
Now, let me just say parenthetically right here, because we're not going to be able to deal with everything in this passage, that this warning about the seriousness of sin and the result being going to hell possibly is for, this message is for the believer and the unbeliever alike. However, because of what Scripture teaches elsewhere, that believers, once they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they're, they're not going to lose that and end up going to hell. Elsewhere, Jesus' words here about hell apply only to unbelievers. If they ignore this, ignore it, ignore it all the way to the end, he talks about hell. That's another message we could have today, just, just that. But in that way, it in no way reduces the seriousness of sin for the believers. He's talking to his disciples. Now, in the early church, uh, some guys took this really literally. <clears throat> Origin of Alexandria emasculated himself to try to get rid of the temptation to sexual lust. He later regretted it when he realized that you can't cure a systemic disease with a topical cure. We could be made footless and handless and eyeless, and it would not make a dent in our sin problem. Jesus is not after physical amputation. He's after, and here's a word some of you may never have heard and some of you for decades. He's after spiritual mortification. That's the King James word for put to death, to kill. Hang on to that word. John Stott wrote this, The commandment to get rid of troublesome eyes, hands, and feet is an example of our Lord's use of dramatic figures of speech. What he was advocating was not a literal, physical self-maiming, but a ruthless, moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification is the part of holiness he taught. And mortification, or taking up the cross to follow Christ, means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or put them to death. So Jesus is using metaphorical hyperbole here to make a point. It's as if to say, you just have no idea, guys, how serious sin is. So I'm going to use some extreme language to try to shock you into reality. Another commentator by the name of Duncan writes this, the most insignificant sin that has ever been committed would ruin the entire cosmos, for it would mar the perfection that God created to reflect his glory. We steal God's glory by every sin. We do not grasp the weight of our sin until we can bring home the ugliness of sin. Satan has another weapon in his locker. Now, obviously, by foot, Jesus means where we go, by hand, what we do, and by eye, what we see and thus desire. And, and that's really how it all began, right? Um, when Eve took and ate the fruit and then gave some to Adam and, and he ate it, the text says, Then the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediate embarrassment and guilt. And from that moment until this very moment, every person born into the human race is flawed, desperately flawed, more desperately flawed than most of us, I think, have the courage to look at and not blink. So that's how serious 
sin is. Now third, why is sin so hard to deal with? In Romans 7, we have these famous words of Paul. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Remember our question, why why is sin so hard to deal with? For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but, again, sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Remember, I asked you at the beginning, do you understand that sin is not an enemy at the gates, but an enemy within the gates? That's what Paul means here. He delights in the law of God in his inner being. But he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, the key is in my members. What does that mean? And we have cross-evangelical Christianity. We have differing opinions of what that means. But for some, it's the old man. For some, it's the old nature. And for some, it's the flesh. I really don't care what you think that is this morning, but it's within you, whatever it is. That's where the law of sin lives. And it's there because of our membership in the human family. And regenerating grace does not remove it. It survives conversion. And it is relentless 24-7. It never sleeps or takes a break. It will survive in you until the day you die. And when you think you have it conquered, you don't. Apart from God himself, it is the most powerful force in the universe. It has one goal and one goal only, and that is to tempt you to do the exact opposite of anything and everything that God would want you to do. One man said, it's the vilest thing that is. The only thing which God never made. It is the only thing that God cannot do. And it's a law, like a law of gravity. It aims only for its own success. And it's cunning. And it's deceitful. And it's enticing. And it can camouflage itself ingeniously. It is flexible. It will try to destroy you differently than it will try to destroy me. And destroy is the right word. It is after your and my death spiritually. And it's more powerful than us. We have no chance of winning a battle with it. So don't even try it alone. 
Billy Sunday, the most notable evangelist of 1900 to 1920, said this, one reason sin flourishes is that it is treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. And its main avenue of attack is your mind. Paul says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. John Owen, a 17th century Puritan theologian, says, sin deceives the mind. When sin attempts to enter into the soul by some other way, such as by the emotions, the mind checks and controls it. But when deceit influences the mind, the chance of sinning multiplies. Thus, while the entanglement of the affections or the emotions in sin is often very troublesome, it is the deceit of the mind that is always the most dangerous situation because of its role in all other operations of the soul. The mind's office is to guide, to direct, to choose, to lead. The mind is like a sentry who fails in his duty, and then all is lost because of his negligence. Is it any wonder that Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Remember, that was Peter's problem. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Fourth question. So what do we do, to, what do, we do about sin? Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you mortify, you kill the deeds of the body, you will live. What are we to do about sin? From the lips of Jesus, metaphorically, Cut it off, tear it out. From the pen of Paul, theologically and practically expanding out the metaphor of Jesus, by the Spirit, put to death, mortify, kill the deeds of the body. So all of that bad news about the law of sin, and it is bad news, though absolutely true, all of that bad news can be overcome by a higher, more powerful law. And that's what we celebrate today on the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit to live in us. Remember, before Jesus died, he was with his men for the last time in John 16. He says this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. When the spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, he will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is that, that higher, more powerful law as a person that overcomes all of the bad news of the law of sin in us. Romans 8, 2 says this, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus 
from the law of sin and death. And that means two things. First of all, it means that you're free from the, from the, from the condemnation that we're free, from the condemnation that was on our shoulders because of the sin that is in us. Jesus took that commendation from our shoulders, put it onto his shoulders, carried that on his shoulders to the cross, and died under the load of it. And when he said, it is finished, he meant mortgage balance zero. That's our salvation. That's our justification. But second, it means that we are also free from the, not just the condemnation of sin, but we're free from slavery to the law of sin. You see, before the Spirit of God entered your life, entered your heart, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, before he took up residence in your heart and my, and my heart, we had no choice. We were slaves to that law of sin. We didn't have another option. But now we have a legitimate choice because we have been set free from that master and we are now children of a different master. For the law of the spirit of life, Paul says, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, this is an issue of our personal identity. Who, who are we? When we're told that we are in Christ, we are told who we are. Or even better, whose we are. It means that we are under the control of, we're under the lordship of, we're under the influence of, we're under the, the, the total umbrella of Jesus Christ himself, and we're in association with him. That's who we are. And Paul does not say that we are in the flesh, like he says we are in Christ. He says we are of the flesh, not in the flesh, and there's a huge difference there. We are of the flesh because of our membership in the human family. It just comes with the turf. And being of the flesh is not who I am, but it's what I'm like. It's what my capacities are. So I now, I now inside me, you inside you, have two capacities. One, to sin because I am still of the flesh. And one, to not sin because I am in Christ. So, what, what makes me choose which one to follow? And it's back to this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds, choice, on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds, choice, on the things of the Spirit. Over the long run, what we think about, we become. We were on our way into church this morning, and believe me, I am not a fan of church signs at all. But I saw a good one on the way in. Think about what you think about. In our media-crazed world, this may be the biggest battle you and I face. I have no intention this morning of telling you how to handle it, what to watch, what to listen to, what to read. All I will say is that much of what enters our mind 
from the ungodly cultural air that we breathe. You're your culture. We, we can't get out of our culture. That air is either ignorant of or diametrically opposed to the things of the Spirit. Um, Jan and I, a few months ago, got into a, uh, a TV series that was really good. You know, it was, it was wholesome. It was a great story. It, it, it had a lot of intrigue. And, I mean, we were just hooked on it. Seasons one and two, we watched them pretty quickly. We waited for season three to come out. It's now out. We started watching it the other night. And we watched the first one or two, and we went, wow, this is really different than the first two seasons, and we'll try one more. Last night we watched another episode. We looked at each other and said, no more. Can't do it. Without constant discernment and filtering and vigilance, we will be derailed. And much of the time, not even realize it. There's the deceitful and the beguiling side of sin. Guys, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I preached the message that I am more dead serious about than this one this morning. We have got to beware. We have that tendency to just to, to, to be culturally aware and in tune, to just kind of be like a sponge rather than a filter. We have got to watch what goes into our mind. But I want to focus on the positive side, not what not to do, but what to do. John Owen, again, this is a long quote. It is a duty of the mind to keep the soul in a constant, holy concern for God and his grace. This is the essence of obedience to the gospel. Hence, the scripture emphasizes the contrast between the mind filled with earthly things and the true need of being heavenly minded. There are some godly desires which are particularly important in weakening and subduing the power of indwelling sin in the believer. These are first prayer and then meditation. By meditation, I mean meditating upon what respect and relevance there is between the Word, the Scriptures, the Bible, and our own heart so that they stay close together in conformity to each other. Meditation has the same intent as prayer, which is to bring our mind into a disposition that answers in all things to the mind and will of God. Both meditation and prayer are always designing the destruction of sin. They reveal all the secret workings and actions of sin, recognizing the danger it poses. 
We discover and become, more, become convicted of the secret, deceitful work of sin in our hearts in a way we never could have otherwise. They give the heart a deep, full sense of the vileness of sin and a constant, renewed sense of detesting it so that it is loathed, abhorred, and therefore cast away as a filthy garment. They counteract all the deceitful workings of sin and therefore remain constantly engaged with God in conflict to all sin. And that last statement is crucial. Becoming more holy in our behavior is a process that will go on until we die. Owen says it's literally, literally like a man who is nailed to a cross. First he struggles and cries out with his strength, but as his blood and spirit waste away, he weakens. In the power of the Spirit, he says, the Christian must spend his lifetime draining sin's lifeblood. And then one day, when Jesus returns and makes all things new, sin will gasp for breath for the last time. So that's our part in putting to death the deeds of the body. In Jesus' words, cutting off tearing out. Remember our key verse here. If by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Just doing certain things, even praying, even studying the Bible, just doing those things in no way guarantees mortification. The Holy Spirit's the only one who can do that. He's the only one that can kill the deeds of the body inside of, inside of us. Owen says, no other power can accomplish it. Mortification based on human strength, carried out with man-made schemes, always ends in self-righteousness. What we do, and we must do, this is not a let go and let God thing. What we do are the means the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish His work in us. And I'm going to quote him again. I think in the last message I quoted him, and I said I'd do it every time if I had the chance. Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. There is effort on our part, gang. As we do things like, like guard our minds, pray, ingest the scriptures and meditate on them. The Holy Spirit convinces us of the sin that we need to repent of day by day by day. And he reveals to us all of the glories and the sufficiency of Christ himself in us and for us. And it's his responsibility then to establish in our hearts the expectation that we will be able to, we'll be able to kill sin that we will be able to live a godly life, that we will be able to live out of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that the Holy Spirit in, in, in that time can make, make real to us that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not faith in what I can do, but faith in the Son of God. And He, he the Spirit of God, provides all of the resources and all of the grace necessary 
for our continued transformation into greater and greater holiness, one step at a time. And he, the Spirit, listen to this, helps us in our weakness. It was on the screen earlier. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's great to have a message like this on Pentecost. This is the war of your life and my life. And there's no truce. There's no peace treaty. It's a fight to the death. And the good news is, because of the Spirit, you can and will win battles. And we will eventually win the war. Because we ride on the back of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of the universe, who cannot lose. Regardless of what the odds look like at any given time, he cannot lose. Sin will die. And we will live. Because he lives. And we are in him. Now, I'm ready to close. <clears throat> and I can, uh, I can kind of hear some of you thinking, well, that was a same old, same old message. Read your Bible, pray, and walk in the Spirit. Yep. That's all I got. There's a reason our model of ministry looks like this, or our mission, mission model. It's all about three things, right? Worship together, engage in community, live on mission. But look what it's circled with. Prayer and Scripture. There's no other way. That's what God's given us. And not only for our mission model, but for as we live our lives, day by day by day. It's what we have. This series is entitled Redefining the Good Life. This is the good life. The good life is living and basking in the victories and the glories of Jesus by, in the power of his spirit, staring down our diabolical enemy who lives inside the gates and killing it. Year by year, day by day, moment by moment. I'm going to close by reading a centuries-old prayer. Would you pray with me? O oh God, Holy Spirit, move, I pray thee, upon my disordered heart. Take away the infirmities of unruly desires and hateful lusts. Brighten my soul with the pure light of truth. Take of the things of Christ and show them to my soul. Lead me to the cross and show me his wounds the hateful nature of evil, the power of Satan. Suffer no devil's device to beguile or deceive me. Open for me the wondrous volume of truth in his, it is finished, 
Write them upon my heart that my walking may be sin-loathing, sin-fleeing, Christ-loving. Answer my prayers, O Lord, for thy great name's sake. And all of the children of God say, Amen. Paul told the Corinthians that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now listen to this. The one who used his feet only to walk in his Father's will. The one who used his hands only to serve others. The one who used his eyes only to see his Father's vision for the world and for us. The one who never caused one little one to stumble. That one had his hands and feet pierced. That one chose to have the greatest of all millstones, the sin of the world, hung around his neck as he plunged to the depth of hells in our place. The Father drained the lifeblood of his Son for us, so that the law of the Spirit of life could set us free from the law of sin and death. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Come, eat and drink, and remember. Remember.